0: Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds, help us to grow like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. This is my mother's 80th birthday today. Okay. And uh, for, for those of you who, who don't know, mother had a hard time with me. Um <laughs> No, but really, um, you know, my mom and dad were married until dad died 25 years ago, but dad was not in the church. And so mother raised me, brought me to church every week, taught me and read me Bible stories and brought me up in the Lord. And so I'm very thankful for my mother and brought me up in the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you who don't know, the aging brain's available now. So have many of you gotten yours yet? So when you get a chance to read it and check it out, if you would uh, do us a favor and go online wherever you buy books and and do a a review, those things really matter online when people are searching for uh, materials. So good good feedback from everybody who's read it so far. Now, as you look back through the course of your life, if you ever take time to reflect, you know, as I was reflecting this past week, very humbled to see how God has worked over the years. Uh, when I was in my residency, I uh, had the opportunity to meet a young lady who was struggling, and I describe her in the opening of the book of Could It Be This Simple, and I wrote the primer paper that led to that book when I was in my residency, and that book was published in 2007, and we began uh, distributing it as a ministry in 2010. Well, last week, you may know, I was at Folsom Women's Prison, where I did an all-day seminar, with the inmates there, Susan and Rich Collenberg have been running uh, a women's ministry, prison ministry there, for many years using Could It Be This Simple? And that's why I got the invitation to come out there and uh, do the all-day seminar. Uh, they, along with the prison officials, have found that those who go through their course have less behavior problems, less uh, recidivism, uh, than those who don't take the course. And so last week we recorded the, uh, the series. We're going to make a new DVD set. And the new DVD set will be given. Uh, we're going to make it available for prison and prison ministries, along with a new workbook based on Could It Be This Simple that Rich Kallenberg put together? Could It Be This Simple, The Way Out of Your Prison workbook? And it'll go along with the DVD set that we're going to make available nationwide for prisons and prison ministries. The uh, new DVD set includes the following four lectures The Mind, God's Design, What Went Wrong, Recovering from Sexual Abuse, Healthy Love versus Love Addiction, and guilt resolution. Those are the four lectures on that. And then just a couple of days before I went to Folsom to do the uh, seminar, I got this email out of the blue, and it came, uh, I'll just read it to you. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Cumberlands in Williamsburg, Kentucky, and a licensed professional clinical counselor in private practice in London, Kentucky. As part of my practice, I have a contract to provide mental health services to the Laurel County Correctional Facility that currently houses an average of 576 male and female inmates. I do individual counseling, and I lead small groups. Currently, I have five groups going through your book, Could It Be This Simple?, Additionally, I have been using this book in my private practice for over six years with amazing results. At the jail, I also use the adverse child experience measurement, which is a scale of childhood trauma, and have been keeping stats on the results. 93% of all the inmates who have taken the assessment have scored more than four, which means they have a history of childhood abuse.
1: <laughs>
0: the majority of them have also had multiple incarcerations, which continue to add to the national recidivism dilemma. I'm finding that as I use your book in small groups with the inmates, their minds and hearts are changing. I know this because their symptoms of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts are improving. I know this because their behaviors in their cell environments are improving. I know this because many are making decisions to pursue a relationship with Christ. I know this because their self-esteem and ability to forgive themselves is improving. I believe that many of these adults are suffering from childhood trauma that has gone untreated and if left untreated will only continue to result in long incarcerations. I'm requesting your permission to use your book for this research project as well as any guidance and leadership you might have uh, from time uh, and time to offer. I first met you at the American Association of Christian Counselors. For those that don't know, we have a booth there um, at any, every one of their annual events and we give away our materials and that's where she got the Could It Be the Simple. And I have always made sure to take any class you've taught at the conference. There is rarely a day that goes by that I am not drawing on my whiteboard the model on page 41 uh, for my clients. And just so you know, I began living the model myself a few years back, and it has changed my life. I know you're busy, but I sure hope you may be able to help with this in some way. I believe with the right research, especially in the prison system, your book could become um, the one evidence-based treatment that could make all the difference for these inmates. So, um, and we've got the, now it just so happened that just where I went to Folsom, I got that email. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. So, and then in the last two weeks, I received this email. I first learned about Come and Reason Ministries in 2015. It was during uh, my year of emergency medicine fellowship in Memphis, Tennessee. And I had decided for some reason to go to the general conference session that year. While there, I visited a number of booths, and as I passed the Come and Reason booth, a bag of free DVDs was given to me. At the time, I wasn't terribly interested in the booth itself and don't even remember who the person was who handed me that bag. The DVDs lay unopened in my apartment for months. Finally, one day when I was bored, I was alone, far from family, had no cable TV to watch or radio to listen to, I finally picked up one of the DVDs and decided to play it. I had nothing else to do that day. As I listened, I think my mouth dropped open a number of times. I I learned things I'd never heard before. I began to realize that there just might be something wrong with how I viewed God, and a number of things in my experience. i had grown up a Seventh-day Adventist and remember frequently feeling guilty, sad, and maybe afraid as well, especially when I did something wrong, which invariably would happen. Over the past few years, I have listened to those three seminars a few times, uh, found your website, and have begun listening to the Bible study every week, sometimes replaying it several times to try to understand points I hadn't thought of before. I am so grateful that God led me to that booth That day, and for those DVDs which have set me on a course to learn and grow closer to this God, my Father, my Abba, that I am growing to love more and more now. My mother listens to these studies with me, and whenever I have an opportunity at work and at church, I try to refer people to the website to find out for themselves. At church, I at times have the opportunity to speak for the sermon, and I will try to bring in some of these concepts before the small church I attend in Maryland. The purpose of this email is to express my extreme gratitude for this ministry and to encourage those working in this ministry to keep spreading the truth far and wide. If there's anything I can do to help further this message, I would love to do so. So I want to thank, and we as a board want to thank all of you who support this ministry, those who volunteer. We have volunteers that uh, help us each week with the broadcast, Uh, sharing resources like she's sharing the resources in your community, prayers, encouragement, donations, all of these things that we can create, these materials that, as you can see, are touching lives. When I travel around, anywhere I travel, I get stories people come up and tell me, this type of thing. So we are reaching a lot of people. All so we are now starting a new quarter, and we are in the book of Acts. The title of the new uh, study guide is the book of Acts. And if you look at the introduction to the study guide, in the introduction to the study guide, it points out that the book of Acts and the book of Luke were written by Luke, which constitutes 27% of the New Testament, those two books, 27% of the New Testament, which is more by percentage than any other author of the New Testament. Luke many of you may know, was a physician. I always like that. He also was not Jewish. He was not, of the, he was not one of the Twelve Apostles. He was not of the circumcision. No. Mm-mm. What does this fact reveal? It reveals something. That the Holy Spirit is not restricted by race, Amen. or by academic degree, or by organizational affiliation, or by theological training of the person. Or by gender. Or, or by gender, what is it that does restrict the Holy Spirit?
1: Our ideas are allowed to work in our minds?:
0: That's right, the hardness of human hearts, which means in two aspects: one, selfishness and lack of tenderness toward the truth. In other words, when there is no openness for new truth to change old ideas. As Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. But for people who have tender hearts, who love others, who love to grow in the truth, the Holy Spirit is not restricted but poured out, and those people grow, advance, and are transformed to become God's witnesses and lights to the world, and thus the title for today's lesson is, You Will Be My Witnesses. And the memory verse is out of Acts 1.8, and it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, what power would they receive? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you power to heal people, to speak languages, to resist viper bites, to understand and speak truth.
2: To understand and speak truth.
0: To love their enemies. To overcome temptations to be selfish. How about this? To lose self-control or to acquire self-control? Now, as, as as I list some of these, which of these evidences of power can be counterfeited by a false spirit? What type of power is the power that is subject to counterfeit? What type of power is subject to counterfeit? Is it not the power of might, the power of physical things, the power of miracles and signs? If you're not sure, what about a serpent speaking? Would that be a miracle? What about magicians turning staffs into serpents? You Remember the story, Jannies and Jambres? Confronting Moses? What about an angel who, uh, who peers as an angel of light to Christ, remember? What about Satan, if you remember the three temptations of Christ, suddenly they were transported to the top of the temple. Do you think they took a taxi over and took an elevator up? Seriously. I mean, suddenly they're at the top of the temple. Throw yourself down. How, how do you think they got there? Do you think Christ took them there? No. Beam me up, Scotty? No, somehow Satan has some teleportation. You get the clue of that also with, uh, in the book of Acts, I think, isn't it, Philip? It's a little transportation going on there with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's very interesting. So are signs, wonders, miracles the type of evidence we should rely upon to differentiate the work of God from the work of Satan? no. no, no. What is necessary in order to perform a miracle? Some physical power over the elements, the material, uh, materials or organisms involved. After uh, Satan's deception of Adam, did Satan gain access to the certain aspects and powers of this planet?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Any evidence in scripture that he can actually manipulate the forces of nature? Mm-hmm. What about the book of Job? What happens in the book of Job when God removes a restraining hand? Do you see him being able to impact the forces of nature? So miracles are based on physical power. Is the question between good and evil that Satan arose and brought up in heaven, was it the question of who has the most physical power? Is that the question? Who's more powerful? No. Is it about how one wields the power, the character in nature, what one does with power, how do they use power? You know the old saying, "Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." What did Jesus reveal on the cross? Remember John thirteen, Jesus says, "All power has been given to me." Now he has all power from John thirteen on. And what do we see from John thirteen on? First thing he does with power is he washes dirty feet.
1: He is the one that can be
0: trusted. And then when he's being beaten and spit upon and crucified, he has all power. He's not helpless like the two thieves. Two thieves can't do anything to stop it. He, he doesn't even have to do the old be witch thing, twinkle your nose, or the I dream a genie thing, blink your eyes. He just has to have the thought be gone. And he could have had them all gone. I mean, what does it tell you that, that he didn't even have a thought to hurt his enemies? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is why in Revelation, when you read about Christ after the resurrection, and you see the heavenly scene in Revelation, the heavenly scene always goes something like this Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was he's worthy to have all power because he's proven he's the one safe with all the power yeah. it's powerful stuff it really is this is, this is what real power is so uh, I was reading in a commentary in the book of Acts called Acts of the Apostles I read the following on page 12 it says "Whereunto, unto ask Christ shall we liken the kingdom of God and with what comparison shall we compare it Mark that's a quote from Mark 4.30 He could not employ the kingdoms of the world as a similitude. In society, he found nothing with which to compare it. Earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power. But from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is banished. This kingdom is to uplift and ennoble humanity. God's church is the court of holy life. Filled with varied gifts and endowed with the Holy Spirit, the members are to find their happiness in the happiness of those whom they help and bless. Do you see a contrast in the the systems of the world who use coercive power? When you see a, a religious group seeking to pass laws to punish people who don't practice the way that group practices, do we say that's the Holy Spirit working?
2: And that statement you just made about the happiness is what? It's by serving others, and yet that's the reverse model of what you see in the world.
0: That's right. So what is the hallmark of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power? Same book, ten pages later, says this, see if you agree. After the descent of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were so filled with love for Christ and for those whom he died that hearts were melted by the words they spoke and prayers they offered. They spoke in the power of the Spirit and under the influence of that power, thousands were convicted. Excuse me, converted. What was the power? Love. Love. Do you agree? The power is the power of love. Mm -hmm. Which is, when combined with truth, remember they saw two streams of fire? The streams, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit of Love And so they saw that when the spirit fell, they had the power of love and the power of truth combined. Now, can Satan wield truth pure, unadulterated, combined with pure godly love? Can he wield that? No. He cannot. This is a power he cannot counterfeit. Get your mind around that. When you understand that, this becomes a, 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 a testing point for you. Can Satan. So, what about though the presentation of some truth divorced from love? Can those who are not on Christ's side present a truth, but have it divorced from love and thereby misrepresent God and do the devil's work? Well, what about the truth? Is this a truth? Jesus is our Savior and we need to accept Him if we want salvation. Is that a truth? That is a truth. Can it be presented without love such that if people refuse to accept Jesus, we torture them and maybe even burn them at the stake? Did that ever happen in human history? Now are we representing God or misrepresenting God? But we have a truth. Jesus is our Savior. We can't be saved without him. It's true. But there's no love. And thus we end up misrepresenting God. Now, I don't know many Christians today. In fact, I don't know any Christians today who would actually kill somebody for refusing to accept Jesus. But can we find the same motive manifested in other ways today? How about Christians who abuse their own family members because they break a religious rule in the home? How about that? How about church organizations that enforce some rule to the loss of individual members? How about enforced creeds or other various belief systems or fundamental beliefs?
1: Back to the second one.
0: Church organizations that enforce some rule to the loss of individual members. Yeah,
1: then why have rules? Why even have
0: rules? Yeah, why? why? That's a good question. Why do we have rules? Why do parents have rules for the kids? Is it, I'm going to keep the health message, even if it kills me. (laughs) (laughs) The rules say we never eat this food, so I would rather die than eat this food. Do we have rules to keep rules? Do we have rules to, t- for, for children who don't understand the principles involved? Some of it is Why do we have rules for the children not to play in the street? ah, We have a rule because the child doesn't understand the law of physics and does not have awareness of their environment and they can be hurt, so we want to protect the child so we make a rule. But if they break the rule and get hit by the car, do we punish them?
1: Yeah, but for instance, I've heard it said before, like, the the university having rules that kids have to go to Vespers, or they get reprimanded or whatever. Should we not have rules?
0: So this is a good one to bring up. This is a brilliant one to bring up. Several years back, my wife and I approached uh, the leadership at one of the universities locally and asked uh, if we could have a Vespers at our home. We would provide for maybe 8 to 15 students. We would give them an evening meal, cook a home-cooked meal for them, and then have a Bible study. Um, if we could have eight, 15 students come to our house and uh, have a, a Friday evening Bible study every, every week.
1: And get worship credit.
0: And get, and get worship credit. That was the key, because they were, by, by the rule, the rule is they're required to be in the, in the church on a Friday night. And the answer was no. Why? Because the, the, the organization markets itself to a certain population that their children will be in church on Friday night. And if they're at our house, they won't be at church. And they want the kids in church. And I said to them, yeah, but if they go and they're not interested, they'll pull out their iPhones and they'll play games and they'll text back and forth and they won't listen. They go, it doesn't matter. As long as they're in church, we can market it that way. But they're keeping the rule. They're in church. They're keeping the, See, this is the problem with rule keeping. You can keep the rule and have no change of heart at all. And that's why rules don't work. They don't. You can never change. It's like you can have a rule for your kids that they have to eat their spinach. And you can even enforce it and make them eat it. But can you make them enjoy it? Can you make them enjoy it? And of course, look at the Sabbath in Isaiah. You don't don't actually keep the Sabbath unless you call it a delight. If you don't enjoy it, you're still not keeping it no matter how coercive and rules-burdened you've made it. It has to be a delight. And that cannot be enforced by a rule. It has to have a change of heart. So rules have a place for children, just like brushing teeth. And this is what the Bible says. The commandments were there to hedge a protection and as a schoolmaster to lead us. To Christ, just like the rules, but they have no power to change the heart. None.
1: One of my daughters wanted to leave the Adventist school system and go to Elmoa El, High School, and I usually said yes to stuff as much as I could, but in that respect, I said no. Suddenly, she wondered why I said no, and I said because all the fun is going to be centered around the Sabbath, and you and I will—that will cause us to fight over what you want to do versus what I'd rather you do. And I don't want our relationship to be one of fighting the whole way through. I value our relationship, and I don't want us um, to, to be in that position, you know, an opposition to right. like that. And so she never did, you know, say anything. You know, she didn't rebel against that or be hateful or anything. She understood that behind this decision was a relationship.
0: But see, once you made, once you made it relationship, you moved to level five love for her, and love for our relationship. was no longer about the rules anymore. And that's why it worked. If you'd have stayed on the rules, well, because the Bible says so, and we have rules, and if we break the rules, then there'll be a demerit in the books of heaven, then there would have been rebellion. But you didn't do that, so brilliant, brilliantly done. Uh, This is out of Gospel Worker, page 92. It says, A great and solemn truth has been entrusted to us, for which we are responsible. Too often this truth is presented in cold theory. Sermon after sermon upon doctrinal points is delivered to people who come and go, some of whom will never have another as, as favorable opportunity uh, of being convicted and converted to Christ. A theory of the truth without vital godliness... Siri tried to insert herself into that. Sorry about that. <laughs> a theory of the truth without a vital godliness cannot remove the moral dar- darkness which envelops the soul. Most precious gems of truth are often rendered powerless by the wisdom of words in which they are clothed, while the power of the Spirit of God is lacking. Very interesting. Is it enough to have right definition of doctrines? Is that enough? Did those who crucify Christ have the wrong Sabbath, the wrong diet, the wrong sanctuary service, the wrong commandments, the wrong scripture? Did they have any of those wrong? What did they not have? they didn't have love they didn't have love Uh, what about the good Samaritan what did the good Samaritan have what doctrines did he have as far as we know none as we prepare for the coming of Christ what is most important that we possess a correct knowledge of the right doctrines or a Christ-like character can a person have a Christ-like character and not believe the doctrine of the Trinity or of baptism by immersion or of foot washing, or of communion ceremony, or of which day is the Sabbath? Can they have Christ-like character not believe the way you do about any of these? You
1: may not even believe in God.
0: might not even believe in God. Consider this quote. quote. This is out of uh, Review and Herald, March 27, 1894. It says, The five foolish virgins had lamps. This means a knowledge of the Scripture truth. But they had not the grace of Christ. Day by day they went through a round of ceremonies and external duties, but their service was lifeless, devoid of the righteousness of Christ. The Son of Righteousness did not shine in their hearts and minds, and they had not the love of the truth which conforms to the life and character, the image and superscription of Christ. The oil of grace was not mingled with their efforts. Their religion was a dry husk without the true kernel. They held fast to forms of doctrines, but they were deceived in their Christian life. Is it enough to have the truth? Remember, we're talking truth and love. We're talking, can you separate truth from love? Is it enough to have truth, doctrinal truth? Is it enough? It is not enough. What about love divorced from truth? No one now listen to this very carefully this is my position and if you think maybe i'm off then let's 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 dialogue about it but one cannot have love divorced from the love of truth but one can have love divorced from the awareness of truth The person who genuinely loves, loves the truth and loves to grow in and advance in the truth. Yet, such a one may not comprehend, know, understand, realize, appreciate, or be aware of various truths. But when they do become aware of new truth, they embrace and assimilate the truth and grow in it. You comfortable with that? Thus, a loving character is a more, uh, more accurate barometer of whether a person is a genuine follower of Christ than the doctrines they hold. Mm-hmm. Evidence for this? John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Then the king said to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the king to prepare for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink, and I was a stranger, and you invited me in. and needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Do you agree that a loving character is more important than the correct doctrines and that one can have correct doctrines without a loving character and thus even crucify Christ? Do you agree? Then I want you to ask, what is the most important requirement in your church organization to hold church office? Is it character or correct doctrine? Is it? It's not what I've seen.
2: I don't think it's either
1: anymore.
0: Does it risk anything if we focus primarily on an attestation to the 28 fundamental beliefs? You've got to attest to these and hold to these beliefs without any evidence of a level five level of maturity, loving others more than keeping rules. Do we risk anything if we do that? Yes.
2: In another way, this is what we've talked about before in the Second Timothy 3.5, denying the power thereof. Yes. Because you can have the truth or have belief in something, but without the power of love, then you are denying the power.
1: And without the power of love, you can wield the truth like a weapon. You know, you need truth spoken in life. If all you have is truth and you don't have a loving heart, you can
2: do so much damage. That's correct. Sometimes it's, it's more loving to withhold some truth. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, Jesus said to his own apostles in Acts, I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. A lot of truth sometimes needs to be withheld. And think how many parents withhold certain truths from their kids in mercy right? Yeah. First, first paragraph says, Jesus' mission on earth was finished. God soon would send the Holy Spirit, who, ratifying their efforts with many signs and wonders, would empower and lead the disciples on a mission that would reach the ends of the earth. Jesus could not stay with them forever in human flesh. Not only did his incarnation impose upon him a physical limitation in the context of a worldwide mission, but his ascension and exaltation in heaven were necessary in order for the Spirit to come. When Jesus' mission on earth was finished, was Jesus' mission to save humanity and eliminate sin from the universe finished? No, no. Just was the atonement complete at the cross? For those who don't know, there's a big argument in Christianity whether this was a complete atonement or an incomplete atonement. This is magic words for many people. It's a complete atonement. They want to believe in a complete atonement. It was completed. The primary view in Christianity is, in the Protestant world, is the atonement was complete at the cross. And of course the confusion is rooted in, as almost all the confusion is rooted in, the imposed law construct. Once you accept the imposed law construct rather than God's design law, then it all becomes very confusing because once you have the imposed law construct, atonement has some legal elements to it. When you realize it's design law and that sin is a problem of our actual condition, we realize atonement was providing what was necessary to restore us back into unity or oneness with God, to fix what sin did to us at onement. But in the legal model, it was in the legal model that Martin Luther developed his idea of penal substitution. Why? Because he wanted to take away the power of the church to manipulate people with the doctrine of purgatory. You see, under the, the model that the time that Martin Luther lived um, purgatory is the idea that once you die, if you haven 't taken care of all your sinfulness yet, then you can go to a place called Purgatory, where the sins can be purged pur- purging purgatory, purging out the sins, and if you spend your time there, then the sins can be purged, and you can eventually go into heaven. And this was used by the organization because the organization held the keys to heaven and hell. And thus the priests and so forth would come to the people and say, if you donate this much money or you donate this land or you send three of your sons off to the Crusades or you do this, then we will give so many extra credits to your dead grandfather in purgatory and send them on to heaven for you. And you can see how manipulative this was of the people. And Martin Luther recognized it as a heresy. And so he wanted to take the power away from the church to use this. And how did he do it? He came up. And he created the idea of something called penal substitution theology. And penal substitution theology is that all sins, past, present, and future, of all people, of all time, from Adam all the way to the last human on earth, were placed upon Christ at the cross, and the Father punished all the sins on Jesus there, and thus there's no sins left for anybody to be purged in purgatory, because they've already been taken care of a complete atonement at the cross. That's, That's where this all came from. The problem, of course, is that this entire construct is based on a lie. A false diagnosis. That the sin problem is legal, that God's law functions like human laws, that God is the source of inflicted pain, that justice is God using his power to kill sinners who don't get a legal accounting for their sins. It's all false. That's Satan's view. It's paganism. The truth is that God's law is design law and mankind sinned. Our condition became terminal. We're dead in trespass and sin. We're out of harmony with God and his design for life. Thus, notice scripture. I'm going to quote you out of Second Corinthians 5. says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is substitution. But notice, this is not penal substitution. This is healing substitution. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that's substituting us, so that we might become righteous. We might be healed. We might be restored. Not that we might be declared righteous. We might become the righteousness of God. In this view, we understand that the perfect and complete remedy for sin was procured by Christ at the cross. But the remedy still needs to be applied in the hearts and minds of individual believers. Thus the species human was saved in the person, the humanity of Jesus Christ. He picked up humanity, broken off and damaged by Adam, becoming human, and he carried humanity to perfection in his own journey. He becomes the second Adam. And now, because of Jesus, the species human has been perfected and saved. And he created or achieved what was necessary for individual salvation, but that requires all of our Participation. We must partake of what Christ has provided, and thus the atonement was not completed at the cross. The remedy was completed at the cross, but the application of the remedy into each believer is ongoing. So, this is out of a book called Desire of Ages. See if you agree or disagree. In describing his, in describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope. That inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to the satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Do you agree or disagree? So, this is... Do you notice the healing model aspects described here? Christ came and achieved what was necessary, but now, which is remedy... But now we have to participate, and you put the metaphors of Scripture in there, it fits perfectly. We get a new heart and right spirit. We're born again. We have the heart of stone removed, have the heart of of flesh put in. We have circumcision by the heart of the Holy Spirit. We get the mind of Christ. The old man dies, the new man lives. We become partakers of the divine nature. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. How do all these metaphors become reality? Through the indwelling Holy Spirit who takes the achievements of Christ. And so Christ said, It's expedient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the Comforter won't come. When the Comforter comes, He's not going to speak on His own. He speaks only what He hears. And He's going to take what's mine. He's going to make it known to you. And what is He taking? He's taking the perfection. Of human character that Christ wrought out, and He's reproducing it at us so we get new desires, new motives, new longings. The things of the world become repulsive to us. We we find we find that that selfishness and, and perversion is, is disgusting and, and, and it's not appealing to us as our hearts are being changed. And do you see how the design law aspect and view harmonizes it all? Now is it true that the efforts of the apostles were accompanied by many miracles? It's true, right? Does that mean that we can know with 100% certainty that God is working when we see a miracle? What is the best evidence that God's Spirit is at work? What would you say? Best evidence God's Spirit's work. What'd you say? I think. There you go. The fruits of the Spirit, same thing up here, the changed life, the heart transformation to see somebody who was selfish, now selfless. Somebody who was greedy, now generous. Someone who was spiteful, and, and, and grudge-holding, now forgiving and kind. When you see that type of transformation happening, someone who's impatient now patient. When you see that transformation happening, that's the strongest evidence of the working of the Spirit of God.
2: And according to Sister White,
0: it's the best, mean, it's the best means of winning convert. It's the best means of witnessing. Yes, it's yes. Lessons. I just read this earlier. She's talking about sharing with with others the the, the personal experience how Christ has transformed our life. He says these exercises, a.k.a. the law of exertion, draw back the power of Satan, they expel the spirit of murmuring and complaint, and the tempter loses ground. They cultivate those attributes of character which will fit what was on earth for heavenly mansion. Such a testimony will have an influence on others. No more effective means can be employed for winning souls to Christ. You mean threatening them with eternal damnation and burning won't be more effective? (laughs) I I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, Now, what I'm about to share with you in these questions actually came from a conversation I had with somebody last weekend because this is based on some actual historical facts. I won't give you specific names. It's a general idea. But what would you say, what would a Christ-like approach be to a group of Christians who wanted to come to your city and have a free medical clinic for the indigent on Saturday. What would be revealed if a group of potential sponsors told the volunteer health care workers that they should not hold the free clinic for the poor on Saturday because Saturday is the Sabbath? And if they won't change their day to do this on a different day, then the sponsors will pull back their money. Christ well,
1: was the original healed on the Sabbath, so it's a great example to
2: follow.
0: This is, uh, uh, this, this is based on some true history, by the way, guys. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 206. Check this. And this is commenting. The Desire of Ages is commenting on the life of Christ. It's commentary. It says, Jesus had come to magnify the law and make it honorable. He, had, he was not to lessen its dignity, but to exalt it. He had come to free the Sabbath from those burdensome requirements that had made it a curse instead of a blessing. For this reason, he had chosen the Sabbath upon which to perform the act of healing at Bethesda. He could have healed the sick man as well on any other day of the week, or he might have simply had him cure, cured him without bidding him to bear away his bed. But this would not have given him opportunity he desired. A wise purpose underlay every act of Christ's life on earth. Everything he did was important in itself and in its teaching. Among the afflicted ones at the pool, he selected the worst case upon whom to exercise his healing power and bade the man carry the bed through the city in order to publish the great work that had been wrought upon him. This would raise the question of what it was lawful to do on the Sabbath and would open the way for him to denounce the restrictions of the Jews in regard to the Lord's Day and to declare their traditions void. Jesus stated to them that the work of relieving the afflicted was in harmony with the Sabbath law. It was in harmony with the work of God's angels. Should God forbid forbid the sun to perform its office upon Sabbath, cut off its genial rays from warming the earth and nourishing vegetation, must the system of the world stand through that holy day? Should he command the brooks to stay from watering the fields and forests and bid the waves of the sea still and ceaseless, ceaseless their ebbing and flowing? Must the wheat and corn stop growing, and the ripening clusters defer its purple bloom? Must the trees and flowers put forth no bud nor blossom on the Sabbath? Notice, every one of these examples they're given, design law. Every one of them, design law. In such a case, men would miss the fruits of the earth and the blessings that make life desirable. Nature must continue her unvarying course. God could not for a moment stay his hand, or man would faint and die. And man also has a work to perform on this day. The necessities of life must be attended to. The sick must be cared for. The wants of the needy must be supplied. He will not be held guiltless who neglects to relieve suffering on the Sabbath. God's holy rest day was made for man, and acts of mercy are in perfect harmony with its intent. But, I'm going to tell you, recently they were shut down by some sponsors who didn't think they should be having a clinic on Sabbath.
1: Well... It could be because if you have a choice of doing it Saturday or Sunday, maybe Sunday is better because it involves a lot of moving around and setting up. and whatever. Uh, you know, maybe that's what they had in
0: mind. Mm. Maybe everybody should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Amen. Present the truth in love and leave people free. Well, what about, uh, okay, are, everybody's comfortable with that, but what about hiring someone to do work for you on Sabbath? we all comfortable with that? Well, this is from Ellen White, who was one of the founders of the Adventist Church, and his eighteen manuscript release, page fourteen. Yesterday Sabbath morning, Willie spoke at church in Asheville. At three p.m., we hired a horse and carriage to take us to Newton, uh, four miles from Asheville. We met a small in a small hall upstairs and had a goodly number were assemb- assembled. Hmm. Well, I just put that
2: out there. Well, the same thing about holy money versus unholy money when buying food on the Sabbath. You know, you go to camp meeting and you get a voucher, which is now holy money, which you can pay for your meal.
0: It's ridiculous. This is the silliness that makes God out to look completely unworthy of our trust. And this is the silliness that we are trying to overthrow from people's minds. The Sabbath was made for man as a blessing. And all things in harmony with God's nature and character of love are lawful in the Sabbath. All things. You cannot, see this is why the Bible says you break the law on one point, you break it on all points. Because all points of God's law are laws of love. And if you are living a life of love and service and other centeredness, which in this particular case they were, they were going to take a message. They're going to have a Bible study with these other people, and they hired somebody to take them there. It's no problem. But I know many Adventists that would say, "No, we can't go to that because we didn't fill our car up with gas, and we can't wait until the suns down to get gas before we can go to that Bible study." It's ridiculous. This is this is Satan playing games with people's mind to to hinder the actual loving of other people. Let's keep the rule. Let's hurt people, as long as we keep the rule. Why was the Spirit, why was it necessary for Christ to go to heaven or not be here physically for the Spirit to be poured out? Why wasn't the Spirit poured out until Christ physically left the earth? Wasn't the Holy Spirit working on hearts and minds throughout all human history? Don't we find in Old Testament times, David's praying, take not your Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit Joel talks about I mean, we, the Holy Spirit's been around, but, but yet not poured out in this way. Well, let, let's think this through, so we can have an understanding. How does the Holy Spirit actually work? What are the methods of the Holy Spirit? Spirit of? Truth and? Love. Does, the, does truth and love and the, and, the, and the Spirit work by forcing His way into people's hearts? So, for the Holy Spirit to have more power on earth to do more in humanity, wouldn't the Holy Spirit need more access to human hearts? And who controls the access to human hearts?
1: We
0: okay. huh, Yes. So so we have to open the heart to that. Now, is there a connection between Christ returning to heaven physically and the Holy Spirit gaining more access to human hearts? Is there a connection between those two? Can you see it?
2: If we feel the loss of Christ physically that we may be more apt to open our hearts to his Spirit.
0: I like where you're going with that. Think, think very concretely. What do you think would happen, even today, if Jesus Christ were on earth physically? What would have happened then if he just stayed on earth physically? If you knew Jesus was here physically, what would you likely do? Would you, would, you, would you want to go on a pilgrimage to get an audience? Absolutely. Would you, would you be more interested in getting into that room with him, more interested in that, than maybe opening your heart to the Holy Spirit? Okay. Do you see the connection? It wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't being willing to pour it out, but while Jesus was still here, they were coming to him for all the answers. When he wasn't here, it left them to search scripture, to contemplate, and to open their hearts to the Spirit's presence and thus the spirit could be pulled out, poured out because the hearts were inviting the Holy Spirit in now
2: the, the last sentence that you read on the first paragraph I don't understand
0: his ascension and exaltation in heaven were necessary in order for the spirit to come yeah so that's what I was just explaining why it was necessary for the spirit to come I don't like their words um, so in my view it's what I just explained was the reason
2: I don't understand
0: the theory there no, I, I don't either their their theory is about power their theory is about he had to sit on a throne and then he had to have the power because it's authoritarian and thus once he had reclaimed the power then he could in his power authorize the spirit to come that that's how that goes um boy there's so much we, we, we maybe we'll go a couple minutes over service. we got started late but I, i'm going to jump up we're going to come back to uh we'll come back to Sunday's lesson because I'm going to jump up and there's something I think we ought to read from Friday's lesson and then we'll come back. But in Friday's lesson, in the second paragraph, it says the following. The Savior's commission to the disciples included all the believers, included all the believers, it included all believers in Christ to the end of time. Do you agree? His commission to go tell the young witness to the world, does that include women or only men?
1: Inviting.
0: women are included keep reading in this particular description of the book Desire of Ages. it is a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls depends only on the ordained minister all whom the heavenly inspiration has come are put in trust with the gospel all who receive the life of Christ are what's that word ordained to work for the salvation of their fellow men for the work for this work the church was established. Amen. And, so, does that include women or are we only men here? So, if you've been enabled by the Holy Spirit, you have been commissioned, Savior's commission to the disciples includes all believers, and you've been commissioned and ordained by Christ for the work of the church. Interesting. I just thought I'd put that out there for you guys.
2: Ordination by the, uh, the group, right? the
0: well, we know that human organizations, human organizations, have historically sought to supersede Christ yeah. and take the authority of Christ and supplant human beings with the keys to heaven and hell, the authorization of this and authorization of that. And now we have the ordination. The church holds the keys to ordination, not Christ. Christ doesn't ordain anybody. It's the church.
1: But according to this, all are ordained, regardless.
0: That's right.
1: Take the church to ordain. Correct. This is the
0: point. This idea that
1: everybody's a witness.
0: Yeah, but that's not how many organizations promote it. They promote it as only men can be ordained.
1: And what I'm saying is. Regardless of what the church says, yeah. we are already ordained through Christ or by Christ.
0: Yes, so then what's the argument about in the, in the, in the, in the organized churches? Why are,
1: why are women arguing to be ordained? Because God's already ordained them. Exactly.
0: But women aren't arguing. Why are men arguing that they can't be? <laughs> or they're not? <laughs>
1: are arguing that they can't be. Oh, they are. both women are arguing, so are men.
0: No, 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 no. So, so women are already ordained, so why are men denying that they are?
1: I don't see that they are any okay, more than
0: women are denying it. Okay, well, then, then maybe you should just check out what happened to the last GC. <laughs> I
1: did, I read
0: it. Yes, and were women ordained? No.
1: They're already ordained by God. No, they weren't.
0: Organizationally? Is the organizational.
1: Right, that's what well, I'm talking about. They're
0: already ordained, so i will worry about it. They're already ordained. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable to realize the organization we belong to may not always do everything as God designed it to be done. That makes us uncomfortable. And I know I've had some of those same discomforts when I've had to face some of these issues until I realize we are not saved by organizational affiliation. We're saved by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And organizations are useful to collectively work together for common mission and common purpose. And within those organizations, those organizations are still made up of human beings who are sinners who are still struggling to overcome. And there's a lot of flaws in the organization. And Christ described that the wheat and the tares grow up together. And they grow up together in the church until the day of harvest. And it's not our job to go through to pull up the tares, because pulling up the tares, you're going to pull up some of the wheat. And so we let them grow together, but we need to accept that the organization is not perfect. The organization has got flaws in it. And our goal is not to let the organization or the organizational leaders do our thinking for us. Right. Each one of us has been given a mind, and individuality, and every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind, as it says in Romans 14. And so I put this out there just to simply show that you can have a very solid understanding of the gospel commission, and for all those who have accepted Jesus and have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they have been ordained by God to be a church-ordained minister. But the organization, who likes power and authority, rather than gospel commission, tries to set up a different structure. And that's level four thinking. Level five through seven is what we just read. Um, I guess we're going to have to skip Sunday. Sunday's was all about what happens that set up their disappointment and their argument. It's because they had certain expectations that were not met. And if we have expectations as we come toward the end of time, could that set us up for confusion and argument and, and, and so forth? Well, how about this? I'll throw a few out there. What happens if the time of trouble comes and, there is, and there's no secret rapture beforehand, Will those who have always expected a secret rapture be okay, or will they be stressed? Or, how about if there is a secret rapture, and those who didn't expect a secret rapture, will they be okay, or will they be stressed? Or, what about those who expect Israel to become prominent central role player in the end-time battle, and there's going to be a physical battle in Palestine? What happens if that doesn't happen, if that's their expectation? Will they be prepared, or will they be stressed? Or, for those who don't expect Israel to be, what happens if it does happen? Will they be prepared, will they be able to handle it? What happens to those who expect worldwide Sunday laws to pass, but they don't pass? Or those who don't expect it, and they do. There's a lot of these eschatological things we have expectations. The Jews and the apostles had certain expectations of how Messiah would come, and he didn't meet their expectations, and it made it hard, and many missed him. Do we have certain expectations for the second coming that will preclude us or make it hard for us, or do we have a flexible understanding so that there are certain things that we can be sure of, but these specific Points may not exactly work out the way we thought.
2: Why did Christ say that he was coming when we didn't expect
1: him?
0: the No, 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 that's not what it says. No, if you actually put it all together, those who are of the light will not be surprised at his coming. It's those who are not of the light will be surprised at his coming. We will be prepared and we will know about his coming. In fact, we will know before it comes but it will be right at the end of time after the period of probation is closed and the time of troubles upon the earth, then the Holy Spirit enlightens people's minds and those who are of the light, well, no, and the Bible talks about we are not, Paul talks about we are not children of the darkness, we're children of the light and the day will not come upon us unawares. So, no, that's, that's for, the, for the people who are not prepared. So, but what about those who expect, here's the one I think, the big one, that's gonna really seduce the whole world. Those who expect Jesus to come back with a rod of iron to punish his enemies to be the source of inflicted pain and punishment. Those who are looking for a God like this will accept all the coercive measures when they go up in the name of the Lord. We must do this. We're trying to save you. We'd rather not, but we have to use you know, coercive pressures, uh, economic sanctions. No one can buy or sell, say him who has the mark. And this is a godly thing to do because we're just going to protect you from eternal loss. And many of the world is going to say, this is our God. We have waited for him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed, and there's no coercion. There's only truth presented in love, and it leaves us free. We thank you for the many blessings. We ask that your spirit will be poured out into our hearts and minds, renew us, transform us, prepare us, enlighten us, give us that critical discerning ability, and enable us to go forward and present your methods that transform lives effectively so that we can see you soon. your holy name, amen.